that day. I had avalanche debris to crawl through. I had a couple 4,000 foot climbs. I was dry heaving. My body couldn't process anything. This is day two of a nine day effort. It just made me think like, what have I gotten myself into? I don't know how I can do this for a full another week. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we're talking about practice. They peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Payson McCalvin. Howdy. Welcome back. We have the Colorado Trail record holder for running unsupported this week, Jeff Garmeyer. Anything Colorado Trail these days usually gets me interested. I was also really curious about the whole dynamic of unsupported versus self-supported versus supported because in the running world, um, there's kind of a whole bunch of different ways to do it in different records. Jeff did it unsupported, which means not only did he not have any outside assistance, he didn't take advantage of any possible neutral refuel points like gas stations. He started with all the food he needed and he finished with all of the trash he created way cool. Also want to give a quick shout out to the fact that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I guess a couple weeks ago at this point, we released Trail Town Bentonville, an all new film uh, from my production company, Stash House Productions. It is living on my YouTube channel, Pace McKelvin, and it documents the story of my attempt of riding all of Bentonville's trails in a day. Uh, But that was just kind of an excuse to explore Bentonville culturally, get to know the people, and kind of get a read on why this small town in the south has just exploded as one of the leading mountain bike meccas in the world. So go check it out, Trail Town Bentonville. It's on YouTube. Uh, Just search Payson McKelvin Bentonville and it should pop up. Thank you all for listening. Catch you at the end of the show. I guess first first question would be I'm I have friends in the ultra running world. Um, where do you feel like you fit in in that space? Do you consider yourself an ultra runner? Or are you more of a, a backpacker? How do you how do you think of yourself at this point? Um, I started out as more a backpacker or through hiker, and then over the last ten years, have continued to blur the lines. So I would say. I've started doing more ultra running races and trail running. So I'm kind of, I would call myself either like a mountain athlete or an endurance athlete. And it's just, I've begun going after shorter and faster things after starting out in, you know, um, efforts that were eight or seven or 8,000 miles long. I've kind of, uh, moved into more of the trail running space. So I think every, every year that goes by, I get, closer and closer to that world while still having one foot firmly planted in the backpacking through hiking. And now they call it fast packing world. Uh Uh-huh. And how did you get your start in that world? Is this from my understanding, that's not really a typical trajectory per se. I don't, uh, I might be wrong, but it seems like sometimes ultra runners, the really successful ultra runners maybe start in shorter distances and kind of go longer and longer as they, get this hankering for more adventure oriented stuff. Is it common for through hikers to get the itch to go faster and faster? No, I'm definitely doing this completely backwards. I um, took a term off in college to through hike the Pacific crest trail and I did it, enjoyed the experience and then um, found more ways to go after, you know, different routes and trails and adventures and, in the middle of one of my uh, adventures, which was a 7,000 mile loop around the Western United States, in the middle of that, I decided to try out this ultra running challenge called Nolan's 14, where you summit 14, 14,000 foot peaks. And the challenge is to do it in under 60 hours. And so 
I went for it with my full backpacking backpack and I was able to finish in 59 hours. So it kind of just got my brain turning for the last thousand miles of that adventure. I'm like, I wonder if I could do things competitive and fast in that realm. And so I kind of circled some um, trail records, like the long trail and the Arizona trail is things I wanted to go after. And then um, that next year, 2019, I tried my hand at more speed things and then kept going shorter and shorter and faster and faster. And so definitely did it coming from a background that wasn't um, like a college cross country or track background, which many trail runners are, are coming from. Mine is more like I'll look at the distance of a race or an effort and it's not intimidating. It's more like wow, I got to be moving fast for that long versus how am I going to make it 100 miles or 200 miles? So it's coming at it from a very different standpoint. For sure, for sure. Does the name Lael Wilcox ring a bell at all? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> your, your, uh, <laughs> your mid-7,000 mile side trip there um, sounds a lot like something she would do. <laughs> I'm just thinking about her, her, which the first time she did the tour divide and she just rode from her home in Alaska to the start, did the tour divide, <laughs> rode the tour divide backwards and then rode back to her house in Alaska. That sounds somewhat similar. <laughs> just cause it's no big deal. Yeah. She, she's amazing. Well, that and, that and, and, and just like throwing a, a higher speed race in, in the middle of just a, a whole bunch of long slogging <laughs> yeah absolutely i think the testing things on the the speed side and the distance side is what makes it fun like with the variability like i couldn't imagine being like a hundred 100 meter sprinter or something because all you get to do is sprint i like the the different types of aspects and throwing some sleep deprivation sometimes and you know you get you get the full breadth of the limitations on your body for sure so as you started to discover and explore this ultra running world, um, were there any names that kind of came up or, or folks you felt particularly inspired by or were impressed with that sort of uh, gave you some further motivation or um, kind of set your, set your track and trajectory at all? Wow. Good question. Um, yeah, I think there's bits and pieces from a lot of different people. Like a Scott Williamson is one of the like old school people who went for records on long distance trails and never cared about publicity, but his whole thing was efficiency and just taking lessons like that. And then like, obviously people like a, a Scott Jurek or anyone who like has this grit your teeth mentality and just it's not over till it's over, even if it looks improbable. Those are the types of lessons that have really helped as, as far as like, maybe the goal seems harder and harder to achieve, but you know, if you're still out there and going for it, there's still a chance. And then that efficiency side of it is where I've done really well in comparison to people with a running background that are, you know, more, you know, I guess they can throw down miles faster than I could, but just that efficiency and that ability to keep going. Whereas after a fast mile, I can follow it up with another 50 or so decent miles that day. Whereas uh, some of the people in that running world are, you know, more, more set in, in kind of how they grew up or the limitations on, on that distance. And another big inspiration is, Joey Campanelli, uh, Joey camps out of Salt Lake city. And he just has the mentality of he won't quit. And so I think those are three really big things to carry into any endurance effort, especially a multi-day is efficiency. That's where you can bank so much time to, to make up things. And then that, that toughness to keep going, even when it's difficult. And then of course the don't quit because you're putting your body through <laughs> basically hell. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, when you say efficiency, do you mean just sort of uh, the like athletic consistency or are you talking more 
logistical stuff, all the nutritional maintenance, the equipment maintenance, all that sort of thing, sleep. Yeah, I think there's um, both sides of it. So there's efficiency on longer efforts. Uh, a lot of it can be heart rate based. Like you don't want to get above a certain heart rate or else you'll kill your ability to push or be efficient on the, on the other end of it. So that's more the athletic side is you want that even keeled effort where you hopefully are getting close to zero left in the tank by the end. And then the efficiency on the gear nutrition side of it is not having to stop to grab nutrition or if there's a gear failure, can you fix it kind of on the run or, you know, body maintenance or cramping or electrolytes. It's all those things. And just efficiently being able to take in that nutrition and um, whatever, whatever you need at that time without infringing on that ability to continuously be moving forward, which is basically the goal. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah. And as you've continued to, uh, transition, I guess we could say into this shorter distance stuff, and we should caveat it by saying shorter, you know, means oftentimes 250, 500 plus miles. We're going to talk about your, <laughs> your Colorado trail, uh, FKT here shortly, but, um, it's all relative. Um, <laughs> yeah. So as you've sort of transitioned to the shorter stuff though, what have been, some of the most challenging aspects for you? Yeah, I've really had to train myself or at least experiment with what works as far as nutrition because um, early on just running since 50Ks, I always had stomach issues throughout. So finding what I can eat while hitting that aerobic exercise you know, um, level and also being able to function and have my body process those calories and be able to do that day after day without losing too much weight during, you know, anything from a three to two week effort has been a big learning experience because I think when you come from backpacking or through hiking or something, it's a lot easier to, you know, go a little slow. You're not fighting against the clock or something something like that. So it's trying to hit that efficiency metric for athleticism and pushing and endurance while also being able to ingest calories and, and things like that, where that's something that if uh, like marathoners or, or shorter trail running athletes, you know, are pretty good at taking in goose or something for a few hour effort. And that's really been something that I had to teach myself and my body to do and then beyond that is also what's the minimum amount of gear I can take and still be able to basically weather any storm or be able to make it through the conditions I was presented so it's really being able to pare down everything to what my body can handle what I can carry and what I can use to you know combat the elements or anything I can face out there yeah I'm really curious about that process too, because it, it sounds, you know, coming from a background where uh, you can afford to take more gear with the, the through hiking stuff um, and then, you know, progressively ridding yourself of more and more creature comforts and safety <laughs> blankets, basically. Um, has that has that been scary at all? Like what what is, it almost feels like, I don't know, like gradually uh, transitioning from you know, traditional climbing to free soloing or something. And there's just <laughs> less and less security involved. Yeah. I mean, there's less security. It basically comes down to, I have to be very smart. So most things are very uh, much down based. So down is the insulating um, factor in most gear when it's especially like a high altitude something. And that means that it loses its properties when it's wet. And so it just requires a lot more care in preserving everything I'm bringing as much as it is packing ahead of time. So yeah, there's less room for mistakes. And there have been a few times where I've been pretty cold, but just having your body, which is basically an engine. And if it's moving, it can warm up. There've been a couple of times where it's like, well, it's snowing up here. So I'll have everything on 
and I just can't go to sleep now because I'll just be too cold and be hanging out there for a while. So I'll just, looks like the snow will be gone in an hour. So I'll hike from 3am to 4am and then I can sleep a couple hours after that point. So it really is this like logistical game of when the most, most worthwhile and efficient times to get that sleep versus when you should be pushing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are some things that you leave behind on an ultra race, like the Colorado trail, or I, I know you recently did the Coconino. Um, what are some things that you would typically take on a through hike that get left behind, uh, when you're going after, let's say, I don't know, a week long FKT. How, well, actually, how long did the, what is your Colorado trail record? Um, just over nine days. Okay. So let's, let's think of it in those terms, I guess, during that, <laughs> okay. actually, what are, what are some things, what are some things that you left behind, uh, that typically you might take along if speed weren't as much of a, a concern? Yeah. It's, uh, the biggest thing is eliminating all excess clothing that isn't necessary. And one big thing is I can wear my down sleeping bag as an insulated layer under my rain jacket if I need extra warmth. Um, another wow. big thing that I've done in the past is instead of gloves, you can basically wear plastic bags on your hands and it recirculates the heat from your fingers. So these are all like not the most comfortable way, but they are ways to combat things like that with gear you already have. And like at night, if my sleeping bag isn't warm enough, I can stick the toe box inside my empty backpack and that adds another layer of insulation too. So it's really eliminating a lot of those like layers you might typically bring if you brought like an extra layer to sleep and it's like, well, I've found something that I've already, I already have to bring that I can use to add to that as well. So it's like, how can I repurpose gear in multiple ways? If, if I'm hiking and it's colder, it's like, I'll wrap up in my sleeping bag under my rain jacket or things like that. There's just, or, or using eliminating a couple tent stakes. And if I, it's a record I'm taking trekking poles on, I can use those as tent stakes. So it's really just counting down the pieces of gear. And it's like, is there something else that could substitute and get this job done, whether it's at a mediocre level or barely good enough, it's it's probably going to work on an FKT if if you're eliminating more and more weight just and replacing that weight with either um, calories or you know just having to carry less. Those are kind of the two ways you can calculate it. Like you can have more fuel for your body, or you can just have lighter weight to need less fuel. Is kind of how I think about it. For sure. And how do you wear a sleeping bag under a jacket while you're moving? Yeah. yeah. You, you kind of wrap it around like a shawl over your arms. So it kind of just gets your core warm and, you know, like kind of like a sash or something, but it mm. just warms your core. And, you know, that's what they've said. If you're in trouble and you have an emergency blanket and uh, a hand warmer is put wrap up in the emergency blanket and put the hand warmer over your heart. So you're warming the blood as it pumps everywhere. So it's kind of the concept of keep your core warm and then your body can focus on kind of the extremities and things like that. But yeah, it, it works pretty good actually. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, and you do take a tent. I heard you say, um, usually a tarp. So a very lightweight, um, tent, I guess shelters would be a better term for it, but yeah. And then, um, when there's like in Vermont on the long trail record, it was a very buggy time of year. So on the tarp, there's actually, uh, like, I guess you call them kind of baffles that hang down and it's just bug netting that maybe adds less than a fraction of an ounce to it, but didn't let the the bugs in at night, which is pretty nice. (laughs) Right. Right. Cool. Um, so let's talk about the Colorado trail a little bit, because ever since my experience on the Colorado trail, I've, I've really become fascinated with any sort of storyline associated with that trail, regardless of the sport. Um, the, the first person I've chatted with a little bit who has made an FKT attempt on 
that trail outside of bike riders was uh, Courtney DeWalter. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, she went after it in a little bit different um, style than I guess you did. Um, she had, it, she did it supported basically. And, and obviously, you know, you know, all this, I'm saying this for the listeners. Um, <laughs> she, she did it, she did it supported with pacers and, you know, uh, food handups, nutritional handups, all that sort of thing. Um, and you went after it completely self-supported. And when I did my effort, um, in, in bike riding, any sort of long distance FKT effort like that is pretty much always, um, self-supported. That's just kind of the tradition for whatever reason. And so it was interesting to me to think about, wow, you know, I wonder what it would be like to do this self-supported on foot. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious a little bit, like, let's first talk broader, you know, culturally talk to me a little bit about this supported version versus unsupported version, um, of an effort like this, maybe which one is considered if one is considered more prestigious and um, you know, why you chose to, to do it the way that you did. Yeah. Uh, so supported would be, you can have people running with you the whole time. You can have people carrying calories for you, you know, telling you which way to go. Basically you're, you just cover all the miles of the trail and can get any amount of help along the way from crew and pacers and, basically anybody as long as you cover the distance and that is you know usually the fastest way to do it since you're usually carrying a running pack if that and then um you can even have they call it muling along the way where people are carrying your stuff for you and uh, how i often go about things is kind of the opposite way which is either self-supported where you'll resupply along the way, like in a town or completely unsupported where you carry what you're going to use for the entire trail from the beginning. And, um, you even finish with all the garbage you created along the way. So kind of why I like doing it either self-supported or unsupported is that I think what these efforts do is it makes you rely completely on yourself, your own motivations, your own, just desire and drive without depending on other people to encourage you or something. And I just love where that puts me in terms of within my mind and what my reasoning is or what, what I want to feel out there and getting to that raw version of like, this is so difficult or I've hit this adversity. I don't have anyone to help me through it. I have to figure it out on my own. And I like that aspect for sure. And Kind of across the board, it's, I would say both sides are pretty popular. It really, the supported side has really taken off, especially last year with so many races canceled and many ultra runners wanting to go after these trail records. And, and then there were, they had their crew and stuff. But I think from the beginning, one of the, the biggest records has been the unsupported John Muir trail record where it's about 220 miles long and you basically are out there on your own to complete it. And so I think that's kind of where the whole FKT term and all that stuff started is from that trail. And then now they've added the supported side of it, which is basically seeing the fastest possible way to do a route. And then that self-supported aspect is still, I don't know, highly sought after for the people looking to just go out there on a route in the woods and see what their body can do without any reliance on outside help. Yeah, that was, yeah, that's a good breakdown. So for your record, did you do it um, unsupported or self-supported? I did it completely unsupported. Holy cow. So <laughs> you, <laughs> you started in Durango and went to Denver and didn't make a single refuel point despite None, the fact yeah. that obviously you go through, you go through a town here and there. Yep. Yeah. I think you walk very close to a couple towns and basically right through a couple others. So yeah, I, uh, dude went completely unsupported trash out. Yep. For almost 500 miles. <laughs> Good Lord. Um, Geez, that sounds terrifying. I mean, just based on my own experience, it becomes this segmented 
race psychologically of, you know, can I get to Silverton before I run out of food? And then can I get to Buena Vista before I run out of food? And I, I ran out of food despite, you know, it being self-supported rather than completely unsupported. I cannot imagine yeah. nine plus days completely unsupported. Um, I also how, ran out of food too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard that. I can't wait to get to that. Um, so talk to me about how in the world you go about calculating how much food you need to take and then how you pack it all. Yeah. So I've come up with a pretty good strategy of, so I did nine um, plastic bags, one for each day, like gallon Ziploc. And that is how much food I would have for each day. And the last day was about two thirds of a day of food because it was like, well, I'll just be pushing harder. And my, I don't think my pack can carry nine full days anyway. So I cut it a little bit, a little bit tight. So I knew at the tail end of that, I was going to be fighting. And then, so I basically did about 5,500 calories per day. I kind of eschewed most of the calculations on like which type of calories I wanted and really focused on calories per ounce, which was, it, it worked. It was seemed to do okay, but it was really more about kind of preserving my body as far as if I could get more calories and less weight that would help in the long run. And so there was, you know, a lot of things with like nuts or coconut based things or things that just um, like peanut butter, things that really pack as many calories and somewhat decent calories into what I could uh, carry. And then my breakdown each day was 80% of the calories were those calories that were high calories per ounce. They were really going to help fuel me along the way. And 20% were more psychological calories. Like, oh, if I eat this, I'm going to like really enjoy it. <clears throat> or it can be like a pick me up at the top of a climb or something like that. It was to have something to look forward to each day that maybe didn't necessarily fit the bill for that high calories per ounce, but I, I knew it would psychologically help. Interesting. Yeah. And one thing I'm hearing too, is that there's less of an emphasis kind of comparing again to the, the bike riding world. Um, it sounds like there's less of an emphasis on, um, macro nutrients than, uh, we kind of pay attention to and cycling. It doesn't sound like you were really worried about, you know, carbs per, uh, per ounce per say, or carbs per grams of carbs per hour. Cause I have to assume an effort like this is, is much more firmly kind of below threshold. Um, yep. and I don't know if, I don't know if you've messed with, uh, um, low fat adaptation and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, you just can't afford to do that on a bike because with the terrain, when you're trying to ride everything, you're just spiking over 160, 170 beats per minute constantly, you know, even three days in, I was doing that. Um, and, and with this style effort, I, I, I did a little bit of, uh, digging and I, on, on past interviews you've done, and I heard you throw out some heart rate numbers that you kind of try to keep your, your heart rate below. And I was surprised at how low it was. Um, but it, it completely makes sense. Um, and also on foot, you don't have the luxury of coasting down descents. You're, if you want to go forward, your, <laughs> your legs are moving and your muscles are contracting. Um, is it, is that fair to say that there's less of an emphasis on macronutrients and it's more just kind of raw calories that you're concerned with? Yeah, I definitely would say that. And it's, that's an interesting comparison to the biking world because just in doing some of it, it is so true that the peaks and valleys are so much more pronounced because yeah, there isn't really that you might have some dip or drop when, you know, you're climbing versus descending on foot, but yeah, you don't get that, like <laughs> get that heart rate under control while you're going down. It's sort of like, the legs are still moving and stuff. So yeah, it is that really, yeah, I would say probably considerably lower as far as wanting, especially early on in a trip, trying to maintain a heart rate that's, that's lower. And then it is very carb focused. I've done some of the, um, like fat burning stuff in the past, but I don't know that I think you're really just trying to keep fuel in the tank and you're, 
you're going to be losing weight no matter what, just similar to the bike, but it's, it's that constant burn throughout the day that I think is where you don't ever want to be at that sprint level or that level where you're necessarily winded and, or winded to the point where it's going to impact you later. So it really is that slow burn, keep stuff going in and trying to maintain somewhere between three and four miles an hour for the the period you're moving. And, and then beyond that, if you are going to take a break or grab water or something to try to maximize that time without effort by uh, letting your body breathe just a little bit. For sure. For sure. Um, and do you have any idea of what sort of deficit you are running per day calorie wise? I know you lost a, a pretty significant amount of weight. Yeah, I would say between one and 2000 calorie deficit a day, I would, I would guesstimate. Yeah. And, and that was more of a weight minded calculation or is that just what you could process calorie wise? Yeah, it's a, it was a weight-based thing um, for the totality of the trail. But interestingly, in the San Juans, um, once a significant portion's above, you know, 11,500 feet. And once I got above that, I was having trouble consuming or processing um, all the calories I'd allocated for those days. So I actually was ending the days without consuming enough. And I made up for it later and as the trail drops down a little bit, as you get closer to Denver and ate all those calories on the back end. But yeah, it, for certain days, it was kind of that lack of being able to process the amount of calories and just pushing that hard. It's, um, I've experimented some with some liquid calories, but I haven't found I like them that much in this style effort. So it's, it is that, you know, there were things I learned on, on that one that, and we talked about this before. It's like, yeah, there's things I could have done better, like finding better ways to consume calories at Alpine levels versus, you know, when you're in a, a valley and, and you can eat freely. So it was very altitude based on what I could even process. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the record a little bit. Um, who had it? And what was your strategy in terms of bettering it? Were, did you have a, a schedule that you set out for yourself or did you take more of a hands-off approach where you, you know, weren't thinking about the record and you just wanted to go as fast as you possibly could? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so his name is John Zahorian. He had it for, I want to say four or five years. And then, um, so I always like to set two goals. The first one is a stretch goal. And that's the goal that I try to shape my schedule around and go after. And the second goal is the actual record. So it's like, you know, like shoot for the the moon. And if you miss, you land amongst the stars or something like that. But you shoot mm -hmm. for the goal that seems almost right at the verge of what you're capable of. So my stretch goal on this was nine days. And um, I didn't quite get that, but I had enough of a buffer that, you know, I was able to set the record without, um, with, I don't know, a number of hours to spare. And so that's like, I did that in, um, on the long trail in Vermont. And my goal was, um, I believe it was six days and I finished in five days, 23 hours and 49 minutes. So <laughs> I got my stretch goal there by 11 minutes. And I just like taking it out of, I'm just shooting for the record. I like kind of thinking what my body could handle and going for that. And sometimes you reach that stretch goal. Sometimes you don't, but I like thinking of it more in terms of this is what I think I can do. I'm going to go after this. And, um, you know, if I am not quite able to get that, then I'm still, very healthy in terms of setting the record. Yeah. And how did that kind of play out in regards to this record? Did you feel in control on pace, all that sort of thing? And if so, did that come into question at all when you ran out of food <laughs> towards the end? Yeah, exactly. So I thought I was going to be right at nine days and like basically within a few minutes of getting under nine days and then 
my final night, I had my last bit of peanut butter and I had no more calories. And the night just kind of spiraled from there. And I was just moving so slow and kind of how these efforts go is the daytime you can fight through it at any level of fatigue or tiredness. And, but at night there's this nagging feeling of like, I should be sleeping. And especially after pushing for nearly nine days, I just was just kind of moving like a zombie. And that nine day stretch goal was slipping further and further away. And that's when it just became like, well, let's, let's regroup, let's sit down real quick. And then just think about how long I have to actually get the, uh, the record on this thing. So it just became a changing of what I was shooting for and made it, more attainable and kind of got to re rethink through how I was going to go about this versus chasing that initial goal that I'd been chasing for eight days. Cause yeah, the, when the, the fuel stopped coming in, it just became a, a mental game of just really, really clawing towards that finish line. Yeah. So you ran out of food with about 24 hours to go. Is that right? Yeah, I would say, yeah, maybe just under 24 hours. Yeah. So what is that like? I mean, mentally, I have to imagine it's just insane, but physically, what are you, what is your body doing when you're already running a deficit? You've just absolutely walk power walk slash run yourself into the ground for eight days. You're sleep deprived. And then you're just not feeling yourself anymore. I mean, what does that <laughs> spiral yeah. feel like? Yeah. So in the past, I've run out of food and water and water, I would describe as like a constant feeling of, of you need water. So it's definitely the one you don't want to run out of, not that running out of food's much better, but food, it comes in waves and each wave gets stronger. So maybe three hours after I last ate, it's like, oh, this wave of hunger. And it's like, well, like I can't eat anything cause I don't have anything anymore. And so, you know, after 20 or 30 minutes, it sort of eases off and then another 45 minutes or an hour, it comes back a little stronger. And I would say I went through between 15 and 20 of those waves and each one is just like your body screaming that you need to eat. And just mentally, you, you know, that you can't eat, you can try to drink some water to pretend that it's something going into your body, but it just definitely becomes this thing where if I get to the finish, I can eat and I just need to keep pushing myself forward to the finish. The longer I sit down and think about how hungry I am, the worse it's going to be in the next wave. So it really just became this mental separation of how I feel versus what I need to do. Yeah. Um, and did you get any, you know, blood, blood sugar, shakiness or, or dizziness? Like, were you completely coming apart physically or was it more of just a, your pace gradually slowing down? Yeah. Um, so the pace slowing down and then some dizziness was definitely a thing, but it hit a hundred degrees as I was dropping down Waterton Canyon at the end of it. So there was probably some, some dehydration going on as well. I was not doing great that last 24 hours. So it's hard to know exactly what was taking place, but there was definitely dizziness. And then, you know, the lack of sleep hallucinations going on as well. So everything was a mess, both mentally and physically. And it was just like, I'm so close. I just have to keep going as much as I can. And once I got through that final night and the sun came up, it was just like the greatest moment because it's like, I know I'm finishing today and I don't have to fight through the dark anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You just mentioned sleep. What was your quota? What, what were you trying to shoot for sleep wise each night? Yeah. So w with a nine day effort, it was kind of a, a strategy of diminishing returns. So at the beginning, I tried to sleep about four hours a night, um, which I think gets close to about one REM cycle. And so it was like enough to fuel the body. And then once I hit four days left, that's when I switched to, or four to five days left, I switched to two naps per night. One, once it first got dark, I would sleep for about 45 minutes and then one before 
sunrise before it got light again, I'd sleep for another 45 minutes just to get some sleep in my body and just break up the night and give myself something to look forward to, I guess, while it was dark out there. And, and then that's when that, you know, sleep deficit came into play and, you know, the, the walls started to crumble and really uh, started to have to fight through that, that tiredness. But I knew that once you start going into the, the deficit and that sleepless and, and like tired, tiredness kind of cave thing, that pain cave, I guess you end up in that it's not something you're going to come back from. So I really wanted to try to time when I was going to let myself almost go for that sprint or leave everything on the line because if you do it too soon, and I think that's might've been something that Courtney did is she was so far ahead of everything that it may have just been going out too quickly where if she had a couple more conservative days, she could just crush it that way. So I think that's kind of always been my strategy is you only have so much of pushing like that. And when do you start it? Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I have to admit, I did the exact same thing. And um, there was an article that sort of uh, compared Courtney's and my experiences uh-huh. in, in, in tandem. And they shared a lot of similarities. <laughs> you know, we both we both went out with this kind of crazy pulmonary stuff at around the same sort of like two thirds, three quarters of the way through. Um, and mm-hmm. just both went out like bats out of hell. But the weird part is you don't feel like you're doing that. And I, I heard you say um, in a previous interview that you felt like you maybe went out a little bit hot as well, but it's so hard to hold back because you have that adrenaline of knowing you're going for a record. Um, and especially from my bra- background where, you know, a five to six hour effort is sort of the bread and butter yeah. when you're just like screaming at yourself mentally to keep your heart rate under 140, it just goes against everything you know about racing. Um Talk to me yeah. a little bit about, talk to me a little bit about, uh, pacing and, and I'm, I'm really curious, I guess, two things, the, the, the actual effort pacing, like how you doled out your, your effort while you were actually moving. But I'm also curious about the sleep aspect. Cause it sounds like you almost did the reverse of what I would expect, which is sleeping more at the beginning and then cutting sleep at the end. Um, can you sort of unpack that strategy a little bit? Yeah. Um, so pacing, I definitely did. And I've done it on a number of things on day one, just, you know, was it wasn't so much the mileage of day one, but it was the pace that I was going was just pushing it so hard because of the adrenaline. And it's, you know, a straight up climb from Durango. And I was just powering up that hill where I just knew that it would hurt later, but it felt wrong to be holding back with so much free flowing energy. So luckily on, you know, days two through four, two through five, I really settled down into being in the midst of the effort versus that adrenaline fueling the effort, which is really dangerous on the multi-day things. And on the sleep aspect, it was really about that freshness more calories flowing at the beginning trying to get to where that final sprint can come where I know I can do about 72 hours with an hour or less of sleep so it's like if I can get to within striking distance of of that aspect I can walk into the finish line just a zombie on fumes and not much left but I don't know if I could start a sprint if like if I had two days to cover, I don't know, 120 miles or 110 miles or something, I don't know that I could do that if I came into that at that sleep deprivation state. So it was really preserve that sanity, the body, the capacities until I got to that striking distance, which is kind of how I've thought of things is if you want to end at zero, you can't burn 70% of the gas in the first half. You want to, you want to sort of ration that and then, and then really just be within stumbling distance by the time that gauge hits empty. For sure. For sure. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you learned during this effort. Let's talk specifically athletically at this point. Um, what is something that you finished the effort with 
you know, having in the back pocket now that maybe you didn't expect to? Yeah, it's so every effort in the past has been something you talked about it kind of like, oh, I'll get to Silverton or BV Buena Vista or wherever to to resupply or something. I'd never done something without these set points in my mind where you can break up an effort, but just being able to be so present in each individual day really taught me that it's kind of a self-induced goal for that day. Or like, I'd like to get this far. I'm not thinking about how tomorrow will go, or it just became this whole venture into my mind, create my own micro goals within this long effort. And I felt so present within the record and so conscious of what, what was currently going on versus fretting about how I would be doing two days from now, or did I have enough food in the bag for the last day or something? The fact that I broke it up by calories per day, by kind of a rough estimate of where I wanted to be each day really helped me not only enjoy that hard push, but also be present on one of the coolest trails around, just able to to have those self-induced goals versus yeah, just having a set thing of where resupplies were. I didn't know that I had like the mental capacity or the goal-making ability to kind of set my own micro goals within a big effort because before I started, I was just staring at a 500-mile long trail. But um, I really took out of it that like that presence in each day and giving each day the, the smart, best effort you can contribute to the next day. And it it sort of showed with how it flowed and I still had the mental toughness at the end of that to keep going without calories. And that's probably the second thing that it taught me is like, if that will is big enough, you can fight through quite a bit, especially a day without any food and having to do 50 miles. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're kind of barn running, um, <laughs> yeah. the, the goal is inside. Although it's so ridiculous to say that you were, you know, barn running for an entire day, but, um, it's, <laughs> It's that uh, my next question was going to be kind of your experience with time, because one thing that really blew my mind um, with my own experience was just this sort of warping of time that happens. Um, mm-hmm. The, the uh, well, for one thing, I remember from Durango to Silverton, a 10 hour chunk. I just looked up and I was like, holy cow, I'm in Silverton. And it just felt like it went by so fast. And then there'll be other times where maybe you're in the dark and, 20 minutes feels like an absolute lifetime. Um, did you have similar experiences with, with time sort of doing weird stretching and compressing? Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, it's so strange. And I would try not to look at my watch or anything along the way as much as I could, because it, it was such a strange thing, especially like effort driven or whatever, like at the bottom of a pass and you're like, Oh, I have, 1200 feet to get to the top of this pass and and you get up there and it feels like you've been climbing forever and it's only been a few minutes or the flip side is when you know you especially in the morning this would happen it's like I almost blink and it's 10 a.m already it's but then the night could feel so long it it just is amazing how variable time is and it really shows you when kind of your mental faculties in your body is firing at its best because I think those are the times like the morning and the evening for me where when things felt like most natural and time would go by and I was like it was great and then at night it could creep by so slowly yeah yeah did you have a moment if you had to pick one over the course of those nine days was there one moment that was the most difficult Oh, um, yeah, it would be the morning. So the first morning, so day one, went to sleep, wake up the next morning and it's pouring rain and I have multiple passes to get through. And then I drop into the Wimanuchi wilderness and then climb back up to the divide. And that day I had avalanche debris to crawl through. I had a couple like 4,000 foot climbs. Um, once I got above 12,000 feet, I was 
dry heaving. My body couldn't process anything. And that day sort of, this is a day two of a nine day effort. It just made me think like, what have I gotten myself into? I don't know how I can do this for a full another week. And that really just stands out as the moment of like, all right, all I can do is get through this day and then we'll see how it is tomorrow. Because if I'd started thinking about it in terms of seven days of effort, I definitely would have walked off the trail that day because it just was inconceivable to have to work that hard for seven more days in a row. But of course it got easier. That's incredible. Yeah. How does this stack up just in terms of sheer difficulty in comparison to some of the other really big efforts you've done? Um, This was really difficult because I think nine days is enough to lose yourself in an effort. Some of the shorter things are definitely more taxing, maybe physically or um, some of the longer things, maybe more mentally, but this was kind of right in the middle there, right up there with the Arizona trail where, um, which the Arizona trail was 15 days. So this is kind of in that realm of it's long enough to lose yourself in that effort. And the day you start the end of the effort feels so far away that it hits both the physical difficulty and the mental difficulty. Whereas, you know, the longer you go, usually the, the more you're preserving, but this was, it's sort of like, running like 800 or whatever a sprint on a Mm. bike would be where it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can quite make it, but it's, it's just that holding on till the end. So I think, and that's what I was kind of going for with wanting to do it unsupported is I wanted it to be right on the verge there where it feels almost (laughs) ridiculous to go for something like this, but right on the verge of possible as well. Yeah. Yeah. More broadly, what did you learn about yourself um, over the course of this effort? Um, I learned how driven I can be if I really want to go out after something. Like, if you would have told me I'd be without food for a whole day, I don't know that I would have predicted I'd finish the effort, but it became sort of a backseat to getting to the finish line of it was there present waves of hunger it was difficult but the drive and knowing how much I'd put in to set myself up to be finishing like trumped everything and I don't know if I've ever felt that level of well I guess I'm without food okay I'll just keep going like it it mattered but it it didn't matter I wasn't going to fix it until I finished and I don't know that I had that mentality in me before. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have your eye on anything you'll, you'll take that mentality into next? Are there any uh, bucket list challenges that you have your eye on? I know you've taken a swing at the Barkley marathons. You already have the AZT record. Um, Anything else on your list or do you you want to keep that secret? (laughs) No, I can, I can throw it out there. Yeah. I'm thinking of going after, one of the the first and longest and most prestigious FKTs in the John Muir Trail this fall. So fires permitting and all that stuff and health and injuries and everything good. I'd like to take a stab at that because that's even kind of the the next level of, I think I can give it a great shot. Do I know completely if I can do it? No, but that's why I want to go for it. Yeah. Who has that record right now? Um, I believe his name's Aurelian Sanchez. So it's about three days. And so it's 220 miles or so over three days. So she got average 70 miles a day. <laughs> wow. Completely unsupported. Unsupported. Yeah. <laughs> um, any interest in swinging back towards your roots at all and going after say an Appalachian trail record or Pacific crest trail record or anything like that yeah definitely the pacific crest trail record would be it kind of be the final major thing that i'd want to take a swing at as far as and i could broaden my views to some more racing or something like a hard rock maybe someday or something like that but it was the first trail i ever did my kind of introduction to the fact that our our country is so full of trails and opportunities to do stuff that just going after that record, I think would bring 
bring myself full circle. So maybe 2022 for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so last thing I wanted to touch on is um, the film that you have coming out that documented this Colorado trail FKT. Talk to me a little bit about how that came about, uh, what the strategy was. I'm really curious about this sort of thing. Cause I love filmmaking as well. And uh, yeah. I'm a, a huge fan of, of these sort of adventure style films. Yeah. Um, had a potential film project that fell through about two months before it. So I grabbed a couple people that were part of that, that, um, kind of lost out on that as well and just threw out the idea of what if we just went after making a film about an unsupported record on the Colorado Trail and they were in we had no idea how we were going to do it but essentially we decided we could make this film that showcased what went into um, an unsupported record and so we basically segmented it they captured some stuff and a lot of uh, ancillary things. And then I had just like a small camera and um, with some good audio that I kind of told my experiences or what was going on along the way and captured things as unique as popping a giant blister or uh, <laughs> throwing up on top of a pass. And it just became this um, way to capture something where it's like, I'm going to have basically no contact with people for nine days and I'll be capturing that. And then the crew's capturing the trail and the essence of it and, and some, some stuff about that. And then now putting together this film that somehow cohesively fits together, although it felt like it was, they were one half of the film and I was another, and there was no contact between us for the nine days. And, it just felt like this project that was so unique of a style to make that we kind of had to do it. So that's kind of the genesis of it. And you now we're maybe in edit number three and kind of working on some music and color correction and stuff, but yeah, targeting fall for it coming out and stuff. And it's been such a fun project to do where there's no real blueprint on how we wanted to do it or whatever, but it's such a cool trail and of course this world of pushing yourself through a trail really lends itself to that storyline pretty well mm -hmm. yeah it's it's interesting the the whole uh documentation versus unsupported or self-supported culture because in in the bike world um we made a film about my colorado trail experiences all, all as well and there's a certain contingent uh longs uh i guess sort of a, a core veteran crew that just absolutely crucified us for yep. um, <laughs> making making a film and their argument being that it tarnishes the purity of a self-supported effort and if you see a familiar face you know it's going to be a, a mental and psychological boost um, there's sort of that, that camp. And then there's this other camp that, um, really celebrates the storytelling, uh, the growth of the sport, the sharing of the sport. And uh, ironically, the, the two biggest <laughs> names in, in bikepacking, Leo Wilcox and Lachlan Morton, uh, are the king and queen of that, of, of storytelling. I, I don't think that's yeah. by coincidence. So there's this funny sort of, I don't know, debate, I guess. Um, is there anything similar in running? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very similar. And I'm really in the camp that, and a big part of doing it last year is this is very much in the midst of, you know, COVID and, you know, every town or going into a post office or something, you're really infringing on that community's, uh, I guess, safety at that time or something. And I think people sort of started forgetting that there were these self-supported or unsupported styles of doing things where you don't have to have a lot you just have to you know maybe some planning and things like that but having a supported record or going after one there's so few people in the world that have that backing or that ability is I love kind of the inspirational aspect or whatever whether you're going after a record or simply hiking a trail it's like you don't have to be that elite level you know athlete with 
all the big name sponsors, you can go after it in a very sustainable and, you know, cost conscious way, whether it's simply a hike or a record. And I think that storytelling is the one that isn't out there enough. So I, I really love that, that aspect. And it's actually more, I would say almost maybe even every single major um, supported record where there's crew and such is documented so heavily that there's very little out there on the the self-supported and unsupported Mm -hmm. realm that it felt like that something needs to be out there. So that's kind of what we, we had seen because if you are a, an athlete that's going supported and has the backing of some of the biggest brands, you're also going to get that added level and they want that marketing material and that video, whether it's a short or a feature or something, but you know, the, the every person going after something or hiking or running something more of a, a traditionally self-supported or unsupported style, there, there isn't much to look at. So it seemed like, you know, why don't we just make the first one or one of the, one of the first ones out there? Yeah. And have you gotten any criticism due to that? From oh yeah. Core, yeah. Yeah. I think there's always going to be something like that. And we are at just with the, blowing up of media in the last decade plus there's always going to be that yeah those people whether it's even geotagging places or or showcasing a trail it's like it'll whether it's it'll bring more people here or you know it's that psychological support so i everything we did was well documented above board and stuff but there's there's always people on both sides and i think that it's important to have opinions and debates and stuff but i feel pretty secure and it Sounds like I I sounds like you're in a similar camp of the if you do it the right way and, and the benefits are, are so important for the growth of the sport and the relatability and the inspiration. Yeah. Well, I for one am, am really excited to see your film. And um I mean the whole reason I went out and did the Colorado Trail is because I I watched uh some of Lachlan's coverage uh-huh. of it. Um so you know, maybe our little film got a couple people out uh, trying the Colorado yeah. Trail as well. I'm sure many folks will be inspired to get outside and, and take a swing at the Colorado Trail at whatever pace interests them. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that y'all went ahead and added that element to it, along with setting fastest known time. Um, congratulations on that. And uh, thanks. I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, really, really excited to to see it rather than just hear about it. Yeah. Um, I will say the, the scary thing with a film like that is when you're starting, you're knowing you're putting so much effort to filming it, that it's like, Oh man, one more thing yeah. to think about on this record. So I bet you felt the same way. <laughs> oh, for sure. And and we were in a situation where we sort of bootstrapped it like, like y'all did, but I've certainly been parts of record attempts, you know, where there's, pretty significant budgets involved and that's a whole other you know to be totally honest not to go too far down this rabbit hole of the debate of of documentation versus not but personally i feel like the whole um documentation aspect actually distracts and challenges in regards to the record attempt i i think if anything personally it it kind of slows me down when you account for the hours and hours of work and stress beforehand, just getting everything together. Um, and then when I was out on the trail, I was so worried about, you know, crew making it to a spot we had in mind to capture a little footage and, you know, was fretting when I didn't see them out of my corner, corner of my eye, you know, at that point where I, I figured they would be capturing footage. So I think it's a little bit of a, an unwinnable argument because there's so, so <laughs> many variables involved, but um, yeah. Like, like I said, I'm just really excited to, to see the finished product. And um, you said it should be coming out fall. That's kind of what y'all have in mind. Yeah. Targeting fall, going to kind of see, we'd love to tour it in a few different cities and just kind of see how things look around then and events and stuff like that. So, yeah. For sure. Awesome. Good deal. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Anything else that you had in mind? No, I think that just, pushing yourself, whether it's a, a single run or a hike or, or a trail record or a ride, I think is, is a pretty cool feeling. So I'd encourage everyone to set an audacious goal and go after it. And if you fail, you sure learn a lot. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, that's so true. If you, if you come up short of whatever primary goal, you still come away with many gifts. Any uh, social media you'd like to plug? Do you have a website? I, I know you have an Instagram account. What are, where can yeah. people continue to follow you? Yeah, website, um, just freeoutside.com. And then um, I'm co-founder of anyone out there's in the backpacking world. We put together this site with a bunch of backpacking routes, sort of following the bikepacking model, but it's called backpackingroutes.com. And then, um, yeah, beyond that, launching, getting ready to launch some new stuff on YouTube, just free outside. But yeah, if you look up Jeff Garmeyer anywhere, um, you should be able to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you go after next. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for chatting. It's funny how much biking and, and FKTs and ultra running intersect. Absolutely. Yeah. Kindred <laughs> spirits. Absolutely. <laughs> well, have a good rest of your day and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Yep. Have a good one. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing the show each and every week. Quick shout out. We just released Trailtown Bentonville, a new film from my production company, Stash House Productions, with the help of good friends, Mitchell Mitchell Films. It documents my attempt at riding all of Bentonville's trails in a day. And this was kind of just an excuse to, to pull back the curtain on the Bentonville scene. Who are the people that are making this mountain bike mecca what it is. How did this little town rise to prominence? Go check it out at my YouTube channel, just Payson McKelvin on YouTube. I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you all for listening. Please leave a rating, review, subscribe. Word of mouth goes a long way as well. And we'll catch you next week.